happening now. We'd like to welcome all of our viewers from the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. Um, I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy in fabulous Missoula, Montana. I'm joining you to live from Missoula, Montana, where the weather is beautiful. The sun is out. It's only sort of smoky, which is pretty good for August in Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you tonight? Good evening, Jason. I am fine. I am the director of technology at Cassidy School. And I was just asking Jason before we started what he calls this time of year. Uh, one of our teammates calls it the silly time. We've got faculty back and it is really, really busy, but good. And I may not remember all the words that I need to. I was reassured it's okay. That happens at this time of year when you have so much going on. So I will try and sound intelligible. But I know Jason will always, you know, sound like he knows what he's talking about. And he usually does. So we're, we're going to be fine. Yeah, I think we'll be all good. So um, I'm sure many of you are either going back to school or getting ready to go back to school. So um, we encourage you, if you're a teacher and you find value in what we do, please share the podcast with uh, friends, administrators, IT directors, um, guys and students. If you are a university professor, hat tip to Martin Horatio at the University of Montana. Um, and uh, we're happy to, you know, share our views and thoughts about uh, ed tech. Um, as, as always, we usually pick out some stories that caught our eye for the week. Um, and uh, Wes, why don't you go ahead and get started tonight with a story of your choice? All right. Well, I'll just kind of start at, at the top. We we did take a week off last week, and we'll have to we'll have to find out from Jason. We'll get a, a concert report. But I put some categories in some articles this week, and the top one is just cool. And this was from Huffington Post, but it was uh, South and North Korea gymnast selfie scores a ten for diplomacy, and it sort of you know is a sign of the times about selfies and how common they are, but but how cool for the Olympics to, you know, bring together two competitors and two citizens of countries that otherwise would probably not be so friendly and certainly taking a selfie together. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask you, Jason, what, what have you watched for the Olympics and has technology affected your viewing of Olympic sports this year? It's a great question. And um, I will say that um, I am a cord cutter, so I do not have cable. Um, and it's really impacted my ability to watch more than the kind of highlight information um, in this year's Olympics. And it really has impacted my viewing of the Olympics. Um, I'm not a super sports guy. Um, you know, I'm a fair weather fan of a couple teams, uh, you know, near the playoffs each year. Um, but I like the Olympics. I like being able to see the diversity of sports. I think that there is a lot of sports that don't get a lot of prime time that watching that success is, is really, I quite think quite inspiring, but, um, you know, the, the weird tape delays, the bizarre coverage, um, I happen to agree with a lot of commentators that, um, some of the NBC folks that are covering, um, Olympic events are in some cases sexist and, um, Ridiculous in how they cover, and um, I, I I found that particularly uh, awful this year. But the thing that I think is super interesting about this is that despite the fact that the TV coverage has been pretty disappointing, it doesn't really matter. Uh, well, it, it definitely matters, but it it is mitigated by the fact that social media does tend to provide us a, a second story stream out of Rio de Janeiro that um, you would ever or otherwise never get. Uh, the, the thing I'm thinking about is the Chinese swimmer 
that uh, has uh, kind of captured the imagination of the world audience. Uh, she was surprised that she had taken a, a, a bronze medal, a tied for third, even though she thought she had not medaled. Um, she talked about uh, the impact of menstruation on one of her races, which is something that, that almost never gets talked about in context of, of, of the Olympics. And then it also bro- uh, broke through a lot of taboos um, in sports coverage and the, the discussion of menstruation in China. And I think that does prove the power of, of, of social media. And, you know, you can provide people a, a, a device that allows them to broadcast their point of view to, you know, the world. And you see a lot of that, I think, very prominent here. And I, I very much enjoyed following um, Olympians via Twitter and Instagram and seeing things shared on Facebook. And that really has added to the experience uh, to me. What about you, Wes? So we do have Apple TV record cutters as well. And we are, um, you know, using apps to access most of our media. Um, and, and there is a, a great NBC app and we've, we've watched a little bit. It, it actually, well, I helped my wife set up an Apple TV in her classroom last week. Um, for the first time she got a donated LCD TV and the Apple TV and it, and in, in a way <clears throat> it's almost better from a school standpoint with class to have the highlights and, and be able to, Hey, here's, you know, Phelps winning the gold and, and be able to go to those kind of things. So, yep. but I admit I am not a fanatical sports fan. Um, you know, however, it's the, the Olympics. It's the thing that's been interesting for me, having been in Brazil, I went there in March to Sao Paulo and we were just, I went through a favela where 80,000 folks were, were living, which is one of the shanty towns. Anyway, it's been interesting to, to hear those articles and, and, you know, lots of contrast between the experiences of those in Olympic Village and on, you know, cruise ships out at the bay. And anyway, there, there's, there's a whole host of issues that, that come up with the Olympics, but it's, uh, it's exciting. And, and, you know, like that article demonstrates the Olympics highlight, highlight in many cases and turn a spotlight on, uh, some really great stories. And those are, those are important to point out amidst our, our political landscape and all other kinds of, you know, different things that are a little bit less positive these days. Absolutely. Well, in other news, um, we have reports of two streaming services that are going to be shutting down. And this is a topic that's near and dear to the heart of, uh, I guess, the producers of this podcast, which is also uh, the host of the podcast, uh, because the platform that we started off on, that we, uh, you know, were very impressed by, but over time started running into some of the uh, the growth problems of the app. Blab has announced that it's shutting down. Um, Blab was a, I guess, probably the best way to describe it is a kind of multi-host, uh, a multi-host video platform where up to four people could broadcast live at once. Um, and uh, invite other people in and out, and had a pretty effortless way to you know, to integrate chat into it. Um, I had commented earlier uh, when we first started broadcasting um, earlier in 2016 that it really was the functionality of a you know a television station you know less than 20 years ago in an app that was being used for free. But um, as Wes could tell you, because he dealt with most of the technical issues, we had problems with the app. It wouldn't uh, push video over to YouTube like it was supposed to automatically. Uh, sometimes we would start um, and lose one another um, uh, throughout the broadcast, uh, although we probably could have both agree now that some of that was probably my unknown Wi-Fi issues at the time. But, uh, you know, it, it was a really great free tool. And as the owners have announced that they're shutting down and they're going to probably come back with a new product at some point that says, does something kind of similar. 
um, and uh, TechCrunch, uh, which reported the, um, the 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 shuttering of Blab, said that only 10% of users came back every day, which impacted um, their uh, uh, their decision to to shut down early as they're going to migrate to this new product. But I would say that you know I thought that wasn't too bad of a response rate on a daily basis. Um, uh, so I guess I would start with Wes. Are you surprised by this fact? Well, I was surprised at the suddenness of it because it's almost like yeah. we turned around and oh my gosh, it's gone, you know, and there wasn't a hair make a transition for a week or something. Uh, thanks to Peggy George, shout out to Peggy if she is watching live or tuning in later. She was the one who alerted it to us. I'm, I feel thankful actually that we had a chance to experience Blab and what it was. I mean, Google Hangouts, it, you know, is phenomenal. There are issues. Um, as we were also just talking before we started, you know, this is a hangout that we're in, except we've set it up and launched it inside YouTube live. So it's a different place. It doesn't live on, on Google plus. I guess I'm, I'm just thankful for the experience because it was really cool and the ability to have people jump in. We only had that happen a, a couple times. It was just, it was wonderful. Um, but as you've mentioned before in the show, we all need to be wary and ready for the demise of free tools and the fact that they are, you know, turning and changing so quickly, I think really highlights, um, how wary and careful we need to be before we overly invest or we seriously invest in a particular platform because it, it can be, you know, pretty devastating, for instance, to lose your content. I mean, I'm, this is, there's some, I'm thinking of, um, oh gosh, uh, a Canadian blogger who, uh, I'll, and I told you I'm not, my brain may not work. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, uh, Clarence, Th- Clarence Fisher. Yay. What's this brain? Definitely not works. Clarence Thomas, but yeah, it's not ahead. Clarence Thomas. Yes. <laughs> my good friend, the Supreme Court conservative judge. No. There's a little levity for tonight. Uh, yeah, uh, Clarence Fisher, who is way up in Canada, he had a, a situation where somehow he lost control of his domain and then his whole website, and he lost his whole blog, like everything. And we're talking about a, a real early adopter, you know, amazing blogger. Anyway, and that that's not because the company went away, but... Anyway, I, I guess my, my feeling rather than being, I'm, I'm of course happy that YouTube live is here and we were already using YouTube as the primary place to archive our shows, but I'm just thankful we got to experience it. Kind of like posturous, right? It's, and, and I think Alan Levine or somebody commented on this the other day. What a, what an incredible tool it was to just be able to email rich media, uh, attachments and, and then they're on a website that, that really looks pretty amazing. You right. know, that kind of capability still exists that people who, are, are smart enough and, and put together the, the right team. But anyway, I'm thankful we experienced Blab. I'm thankful that we've got other, other alternatives. And I think we're probably safe continuing to put our eggs in the Google basket, so to speak. Uh, even though things may change, you know, streaming video and media, there, I think the article, um, that we put in there from TechCrunch also listed a couple others that I hadn't heard of before. And so there's, there's several folks that are trying to make this work. And the last observation I'd have is, you know, it is a tough marketplace to figure out. And the fact that yeah. Google has struggled so much with Google Plus and then with live streaming and how all of this plays out. I mean, ultimately, these companies do need to find a way to monetize. However, I'll say a litmus test of, hey, only 10% came back every day. I mean, come on. How addictive do you think your, your, uh, 
you know, platform is. I, I guess Facebook is that way, but it's, it's be pretty hard for somebody to come up with a tool that a, a huge percentage of users come back to every day. So hopefully they won't, they won't set that as their, their goal that in order to survive, we've got to have, you know, 90% of our users coming back every day. Cause I don't think that that would happen with the streaming media app, but it'll, I mean, it'll be exciting to see what they come up with next. I want to point out one of the things about that TechCrunch article, there was a quotation from um, the CEO. He said, the Blab was great in many ways, but it wasn't going to be an everyday thing for millions. So we're kicking down the sandcast and rebuilding it as an always-on place to hang out with friends. And the reason why I think that that notion is so interesting is because um, – you know, they, they think that, well, two things. First, they think that the power of an app is attracting, you know, apparently tens or hundreds of millions, right? Which is, um, interesting to me because I think that also proves that, um, not, not all apps that are useful are going to have an economic model that's going to keep them around for very long. And, you know, I, I think that, um, I do think that that is part of the mistake of the, you know, fail fast, nature of Silicon Valley as it relates particularly to educational technology tools because it may take time to get that or you may never have that kind of buy-in. And so if you can't get a 10 million you know, regular users, um, you should still be able to find an economic model. But the second piece of that is, is the piece that they took from it was that they need a tool that allows people to easily hang out with their friends via an app, right? And that's not what we saw in it at all. It's certainly not uh, what Peggy saw in this uh, uh, app at all. And my guess is um, we had other folks that started following us on Blab. I had a lot of followers on Blab that would sometimes drop in briefly in our weekly broadcast. And I don't think they saw this in Blab. And so, you know, the, uh, it's interesting, um, you know, so many apps, uh, ultimately pivoted to something else. Uh, you know, famously Instagram was supposed to be a location check-in service. Uh, kind of like Foursquare, and they ultimately pivoted to, um, you know, a you know, square pictures with filters and became a, you know, multi-billion dollar business. Um, and I think that's another way to kind of understand some of what's going on here that, you know, they're, that they're not necessarily developing towards us as an educational technology market. So things, things are, are, are shifting. So something to keep in mind if you find a favorite tool. And one more thought, you know, here in the EdTech Situation Room, we put the uh, lens of education on on articles. And I'll comment that I, w- I was actually setting up our life-size video conferencing unit again because we're part of the Malone Network. It's called M- MSON. Uh, it's a network out of Stanford where our uh, some of our students do. Yeah, I, I can hear a dog now. You can hear a dog now? Can you hear my voice? Yeah, yeah I can. Yep, there you are. Okay. My golden retriever, who is doggone needing to go outside, uh, was actually tripped over the cord. I have, I have my laptop <laughs> cord dangerously strewn. It's actually in the air. Here, we'll do some full disclosure. There it is. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, 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 well, that's why the breakaway, uh, cables for Max used to be great. Gosh, yes. what, what were we saying? Something about the setting up life size. So we've got students who are going to be taking some pretty high, high level courses from professors in Stanford and, and other places. Video conferencing has absolutely not become a huge thing in K-12 education. Um, a number of years ago, mid-2000s, early 2000s, we thought interactive televideo was going to just be this huge, huge thing. And we had these room systems and, you know, schools like, like mine, Texas Tech, uh, we, we were spending fifty to $70,000 for a single room of, you know, push-to-talk microphones and multiple screens and all this stuff which we definitely utilized and, and was beneficial. But, you know, video as it went to the web, 
uh, just became much more affordable to not, you know, have these huge systems. And then the companies like Tanberg and uh, Cisco now, um, life size polycom, uh, went into this high definition, what do they call it? Um, what is it? Something presence, telepresence, you know, just yep. super high end stuff. So the, the U S command authority, um, you know, the president, the, uh, the joint chiefs, um, all, you know, commanders in Iraq. I mean, there's been a lot of folks, you know, like that using it, but it, it just hasn't had the impact in K 12. And I, I cynically would say that our, Desire to adhere to our traditional bell schedule is probably the number one impediment to live video, the use of video conferencing, the idea that, hey, why don't we bring in, you know, Jason's um, relative up in Montana who is a park ranger or, or whatever. We really should, and I, and I'm going to try to work, work for this at our school, uh, leverage the opportunity to bring in expertise from our community. Like we have parents doing all kinds of cool jobs who could probably FaceTime for a little bit back to the classroom and say, Hey, here's how I'm using writing. Here's how I'm using math. And by the way, here's what I do on a daily basis and what I did in college to get there, et cetera. Um, I, but I, I've had that sense for a while. So the educational lens I'd say on this is kind of, eh, you know, cause I think we're just going to sort of keep on with our traditional schedules and, you know, streaming media and live video will, will impact society quite a bit outside of the classroom, but I don't see it having a dramatic impact in the short term because I think we, we tend to be pretty committed to school as it always has been. Right. And then the second story here, um, is that, uh, uh Google has announced, um, that they will be moving Hangouts on Air from Google Plus, the, uh, fledgling, uh, Google social network. Uh, to YouTube Live, which is, I, my humble opinion, a more logical place for that. And um, for those of you that have not been following the kind of trials uh, and and, and um, uh, uh, shocking fall of, of Google Plus, uh, Google Plus, which was a brilliantly created, brilliantly designed social network um, that did struggle to find early audience. Um, because of how complex it was, people didn't really understand the kind of leveling of friends that the circle process allowed. At one point, Google went all in on Google Plus and basically used Google Plus to, uh, uh, to become a springboard for other products. And then ultimately, um, uh, as it wasn't adopted, then it became an impediment for people to adopt Google tools because either Google Plus wasn't something that, for example, Google Apps for Education, Education Domain would want to turn on to get access to those materials, or it just became cumbersome to try to figure out how to navigate Google Plus to get to those pieces. Um, the reason why I mention this, and I wish that my older blog, I, I had the archive more readily available, but I called this... Um, several years ago when Google Plus was uh, starting because I always felt that the most exciting thing about Google Plus, even though it made total sense, especially from a teaching and, 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 and uh, um, kind of an appropriate relationship standpoint, like as a social network, it was brilliant. It was too complex, I think, to get wide um, a, a wide adoption. And Hangouts, I thought, was the most exciting technology that was coupled with Google+. And here we are. Hangouts has been pulled from Google+. It's its own independent tool. Hangouts on Air has been pulled from Google+. It's now integrated wisely into YouTube. And, um, you know, Google uh, continues along the pathway of depreciating tools that just don't get the market share, whether users are are passionately in love with them or not. So, uh, Wes, are you bemoaning the death of Google+. 
No, I honestly felt like it was something I had to do because lots of people were jumping into it. Oh, great. Here's another place. I got to cross post stuff and have followers and manage and I will be completely fine. I spend just a tiny amount of time in Google Plus um, as far as social networking. The majority of my time is spent in Twitter. So, nope, I'm happy to, well, I'm fine to see it go and, you know, we'll see what else, what else iterates, but. I'm, I'm not going to put that on my, my, uh, gravestone of sorrow with posturous and, you know, um, cinch and these other web 2.0 tools that I love that are dead. Okay. There it is. Uh, Wes, why don't you take us to our next story? All right. So we're going to talk about DMCA and safe harbor. There's an article, uh, in, in, from NPR on August 8th, why Taylor Swift is asking Congress to update copyright laws. And then Wired has an article called the uh, music industry's new war is about so much more than copyright. And this touches on some really important issues, uh, getting to the foundation of how the internet works and how we need to be careful not to break the internet or not to let, you know, legislators break the internet with potential litigation and just onerous burdens that are going to make things impossible to grow and flourish. So one of one of the issues is that streaming music is huge and thousands, millions, tons of people are streaming their music now and not, you know, going to the store and buying it. YouTube has a very clever content ID system which is supposed to, and in my experience, has done a good job of identifying even small copyrighted snippets of audio. A few years ago, that's like five or six probably, or more, uh, I did a, a video sort of trying to be as cool as David Warlick, not, not getting there, but uh, he did a, a presentation for K-12 Online in the early days by a railroad track. And so anyway, I was shooting video and I had a, a short little clip of Superman and doggone it, if YouTube uh, content matched, our ID match didn't say, hey, that's copyrighted, you can't use that. I ended up appealing it. Uh, it's called a strike on your channel. And I filed a fair use claim and said, hey, I'm making this educational video and just using a small portion, yada, yada. And they end up saying, okay, that's fine. But, and it, it was educational. So teachable moment there. But um, anyway, the, the amount of payout to artists is far, far lower than the growth uh, that we've seen of YouTube's you know, streaming, streaming video and just the, the number of users. Now, one of the articles talks about the fact that many of the people who are streaming are are in uh, developing countries. And so their potential to pay for YouTube Red or, you know, to be marketed to with advertisers, you know, is 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 different. And, and that is a whole dynamic that's happening that so much of YouTube and the web, it's outside the United States. We kind of maybe sometimes think here in North America that like we're the center of the world and there's just, you know, millions and billions of people that are there on the, on the web around the world. So the danger would be if, if these groups get their way, uh, they would be trying to hold YouTube accountable and responsible for piracy. And what, what now happens with the digital uh, millennium copyright act, the DMCA is that there's a provision called safe Harbor. And that means that as long as the company is, you know, making good faith efforts to, to deal with it, they're not going to be responsible for the content that's shared. And <clears throat> at, at some degree, companies need to, right? I didn't put this article in, but there's, I've read some good things lately about Twitter and just how horrible Twitter has been about dealing with yeah. harassment and trolls and, and, uh, you know, that Twitter, did, Twitter has not policed themselves the way that they have. 
Um, right. Hopefully we're going to see, and I'm sure the EFF, the Electronic Front, uh, Frontier uh, Foundation is going to come out strong for this to say, look, let's not break the internet. Um, we, we shouldn't hold the companies that are transporting the, the, the packets responsible for the content of the packets and you know, there, there needs to be a balance struck. So there's greed at play here. There's artists and labels, particularly labels that want to see a, a larger slice of the streaming music revenue pie flowing to them, you know, versus flowing to YouTube. And so perhaps YouTube is going to increase the amount of payout that they give. But anyway, there's a, there's a lot of issues here and it kind of gets to the, the heart of the internet. So do you think this is a big deal, Jason, or, or not something that we should worry about? Well, I think the bottom line for me is that, um, you know, we usually do focus on another story or two of disrupted industries related to the Internet. And, you know, music was the first, right? I mean, it was the first industry to really take it uh, uh, at the bottom line because they were not able to adapt quickly with time. And, uh, you know, I would agree that it's wrong to steal media. I would agree it's wrong to pirate. Um, but the bottom line is for the longest time, if you want to use a modern device, that was your only option for doing so was breaking the law to do it. And so, uh, you know, all the evidence of price fixing and keeping music artificially expensive and all those things that that the industry was doing. I don't have a ton of sympathy for the music industry, um, you know, now that they're trying to figure out an economic model. And to be honest, I don't know if they can go back from streaming. Right. Like, I think streaming is really the expectation now. Um, I don't see YouTube disappearing as a music source. Um, I don't know what you do next, right? I just, I can't wrap my brain around how you possibly bring back the good old days of, you know, aggressively price controlling media. So I, you know, I, I, I tend to, this is going to be the to, uh, really bizarre if this phrase is taken out of, of, of context. I trust Taylor Swift. Um, in that I feel like she's had a fairly fair minded artist voice, right? Um, and um, she certainly doesn't need the money, whereas um, a lot of small-scale artists do need the money, and they're getting probably a little more um, hassled by the current media landscape because they get their pennies a month for for you know uh, listens on Spotify or, or 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 Google Play Music or Apple Music. But the bottom line is is that this industry, I I think is not going to be like the good old days. And so I agree that individual users probably should be held accountable, which is part of the argument of maybe adapting these laws. But I just don't know where you go with this. Like, I, I just think it all becomes very complex at some point. And um, you won't, like, you may be able to go back to the day where people will pay 99 cents a song again, or even economize to $2 a song when you consider inflation now that we're getting you know, nearly was it 16 years past the iPod introduction. Um, but it's, you know, I don't, I wish that we could have an honest conversation about how we reintroduce a good economic model for artists without trying to pretend that 2016 is, 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 is 1976. So I think it's a tough, it's a tough thing. And it's it part of, of the discussion of, you know, um, what do we do with, traditional economic models now that they've been totally hammered by modern day media. Well, I'll have a personal connection here and then a school one. The personal one is <clears throat> we are now subscribing to Apple music and I don't think we're going to stop. Uh, I do have uh, until today, three 
basically teenagers. One of them has a couple weeks till our 13th birthday. <clears throat> our son went to left, left for college today with Shelly. Um, but you know, it is, I, I freaking love it. It yeah. is incredible to be able to have someone mention a song. And unless it's just crazily, you know, obscure, um, I can pretty much, you know, talk to Siri and say, Siri, play da 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 from Apple Music, and I am listening to the song. It, that is unbelievable. So, on a personal note, I I agree that we're not going to turn back the clock. And while I was kind of clinging to the old ways, because I was one of those you know kids in college that what was it? BMG was the CD club, you know, and you got like 18 free and then you, you know, kept on spending your, your, dis- your di- all the disposable income that, yeah, maybe not all that much, but whatever you were buying CDs and you owned them. I was clinging to that idea that I wanted to own things. And now, you know, my ideas of that are changing. The school connection to this is many, many more folks are streaming audio. So what are we allowing on our networks? We were yeah. about to upgrade our firewall last year. We did not. Um, we are needing to go to a next generation firewall to have better application specific control, uh, you know, to be able to say, and, and we've done this, we have a, a, a sonic wall that's a number of years old, but we have to get on the phone with wherever the tech, you know, support is in, in India or wherever. And it was fairly cryptic to just block YouTube. I mean, there was a whole bunch of sites to put in versus a, a checkbox to say here, we want to disallow and right. I said, I said YouTube. I meant Netflix. Um, we, we still have, you know, YouTube available for, for teachers. Anyway, that whole side of bandwidth and, and connectivity, uh, just look at cell bills. I mean, I, I actually, um, moved my, I, I was on our school's, uh, cell phone plan with AT&T and it was incredibly hard because I had left T-Mobile where I had 10 gigs a month with a data cache. And so I never ran out. And to an AT&T plan with only five gigs, which was shared tethering as well. And I'll admit that I went over quite a bit in one of our summer months. And anyway, it's just going to work out better. And this is how we handle most employees now is is just have a, a, a fixed amount of money that we compensate them on the side and they have their own plan. But, you know, it's it's crazy how much bandwidth has increased with consumption in terms of streaming music. So there is implications for schools and what are we going to allow and are we going to, you know, limit the amount that, that each person can download as far as their percentage? Or do we just say, you know, no Apple Music, no, no, um, you know, streaming Pandora, et cetera. Um, it's been a challenge for us and probably will be this year more than ever because more people are streaming their music rather than just playing it off their device. Yep. Here, here. And. Um, you know, and I, I think we, the other thing about bandwidth that is important to mention is that, um, and, and I, and I love, uh, Wes, that you're on, you're an on the ground tech director, uh, because you can bring that perspective to this, because as much as I would say, as someone who doesn't have to buy or control bandwidth, like, let everyone stream, you know, yeah. like, that's a, and you're at the university, issue. right? I mean, what, oh what, God, what is the university, Mon- what is the university of Montana's, um, this is your homework for tonight. Find out what their pipe to the commodity internet well, is. I test it regularly and I can get, especially when, when there's no students there, I get 900 down without blinking an eye and, um, 900 down. So everything is like, you know, in fact, like my internet's like, why is the Microsoft site so slow? Like it's, it is unreal. And part of that, you know, is, is a campus with, you know, with, uh, you know, 10,000 students and, um, yada, yada, yada. But, 
Um, yeah, I don't ever, and it, you know, and I, my, I'm complaining because my 60 megabits at home is only giving me 40 tonight, right? So, um, <laughs> you are living in a dream world. I, know, I mean, I know. that is that, that is incredible. I've never, I've never seen an internet speed test that high. So yeah, yeah, I'll send, I'll send you a, a Twitter pic of, of a test tomorrow. And it's, it's the right time too, because there's no students on campus. But even when we're competing with students, because they keep us largely on separate pipes, it's still four or 500. And, um, yeah. And, you know, and I, I think that that, that, that perspective that not everyone can stream. And I've talked to some tech directors in Montana that had to crack down on Netflix, even though in some cases, Netflix is the only source for some videos now. They can't have more than two or three streams at once in a small school district because they can only get 60 down. You know, that's actually, that may be a homework for myself, not that it'll be high priority right now, but it would be uh, interesting. I guess we could just do it with ScreenFlow, but if there's a way as far as getting clips, I, there's, a, there's a website that my wife, we heard about through her children's ministry stuff where you could subscribe mm-hmm. to get clips of different movies, you know, and it was, there was a licensing element as far as some artists getting paid, but that, the whole side of what kind of media you're going to use in the, in the classroom and, and uh not everybody's got a, a big data plan. I'll actually segue to the next article if that's okay cuz it, it's Verizon. And uh the article is that Verizon's metamorphosis can you see me as a tech giant now? This yep. is in NPR on August 9th and <clears throat> I've mentioned before and I'm sure will again about how vital Flickr is to me and Verizon has purchased most of Yahoo, not the Alibaba yep. Chinese investment which was the most uh highly valued part of Yahoo's portfolio. But, you know, Verizon, which was a, a baby bell or inherited a baby bell and was a was a child of, of uh, Ma Bell and, and AT&T, you know, we think of them perhaps now as America's largest network or whatever. I mean, they want to become a media company. They see back to what we're talking about, streaming video and then also new shows. Uh, I am not a huge TV watcher. Um, but I, but I do think it's wonderful to see the proliferation of different kinds of programming. Cause again, sometimes folks with old media would, would lament and make us believe, oh, it's horrible. We're just living in this terrible time. And while it is true that old models are not necessarily paying the way they used to, if you're an, a creative or you're somebody who's a writer and you want to, you know, have your ideas out there, you know, it's not just like the main networks that you go to. There are all these other players. And so, uh, just as it's a bit, oh, I don't know, instructive and sobering to see how Google has struggled with Google Plus. I mean, more people are going to be trying to make it in this marketplace and, and there's more potential, there's potential for niche markets, right? And not just, probably not just big players. I don't know. That the, the way a lot of the web economics works is you have a few players and then some become dominant. Maybe that's going to happen in everything. But anyway, I hope that Verizon, um, I don't know. It's really tough to change an existing company's culture. We're, we're, we seem to sort of be watching Microsoft try to do it. Dell has been, you know, trying to do it and they went private, uh, so that they didn't have to face shareholders as they really reinvented themselves. And so I hope that, that, uh, this is successful with Verizon, at least so far as Flickr is concerned. Um, but it's also a, another sign of the times and why it's important to encourage our kids to be creative and to be entrepreneurial and to, yeah. you know, be able to look beyond the jobs of today because folks are inventing jobs and are inventing new ways to, you know, influence people, entertain people. Yep. Um, you know, share games and the the statistics in the article about the billions of users 
that are on, you know, largely mobile devices is a staggering thing. So there are good sides and bad sides to that, but <clears throat> one good side of it certainly is, you know, more choices as a consumer. But at some point, I'll, I'll throw this to you, Jason. Are you ever overwhelmed by choice? <laughs> well, and I think that's that's the, uh, and I can give you some specific examples of this. That I, um, Wes, you've heard me speak a little bit before about things like workflow, and I'm somewhat obsessed about the notion of how do highly performing tech users use technology, and how does that set them apart from others? And the paradox of choice is part of the complication of being a good tech savvy teacher in in 2016, because it's not. I mean, there's a lot of people get, and as, as, as I've mentioned before, I tend not to get too deep in the, you know, Mac versus PC or the, uh, Android versus, uh, uh, iPhone debates because frankly, I love them all equally and they're all deliciously beautiful. Um, but the, the complication for me is, is that if you are a, 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 just a regular user, you know, or, uh, the Twit, uh, uh, podcast, tech podcast tend to call them normal people, right? If you're not, like, you know, me and Wes, um, the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, it's probably not a good idea for you to try a different uh, screen capture app every three to four days, right? You pick something, you stick with it and you move on. And I think that that, and I, and I honestly think the way we teach professional development sometimes really complicates that. Like if you go to a conference and you hear about six different apps that are the new awesome apps that essentially do something an existing app you're comfortable with does, but maybe a little bit better from a different perspective, that doesn't mean you should then adopt that tool. And I think that uh, the embarrassment we have of riches of options um, on, you know, news sites and places to store your photos and um, game platforms and news outlets and yada, yada, yada has really, really complicated, I think, um, uh, especially for, you know, just medium function users being really effective uh, on these tools. Um, now, it, it also means that there's a lot of competition. The tools tend to get better over time. The kind of uh, uh, fight or flight um, uh, nature of, of app development actually benefits us, even though we were, uh, you know, earlier today bemoaning on the podcast that, um, you know, it, it means the tools tend to fail fast and go away, even if you like them or want to see them develop. But it is a real problem. And, um, you know, I, I found a, a new Chrome-based screencasting um, app the other day that after the one I like to use shut down, I've been using three of them. They're all three installed. Like, that's stupid. Uh, pick one and stick with it, right? But, you know, there's always something a little bit more interesting to try. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a real issue in, in how we face tools in the world. You're, you're uh, encouraging me to actually, uh, I could change my geek of the week, uh, which I'm not saying we jumped through yet, but you know, one of our teachers, uh, I think I'm going to try to find this, um, anyway, showed me something and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's that adoption curve, right? All of us need to know Everett Rogers technology adoption curve because that's the normal curve where we have early adopter innovators, Early majority, late majority laggards. And I definitely agree with you yep. that we need to pay more attention to it because folks who are in the early adopter innovator crowd might tend to present sessions that cater to themselves versus recognizing that, you know, early, late majority um, teachers when it comes to, to tech adoption have a, a different approach and don't just want the, the new shiny, you know, tool that, that we can try. So. All right. We don't have to go in order here, so if you wanna if you wanna skip something, feel free. Sure, yeah, let's go on to this. Um, Wired 
reported uh, this week that they're advising that college students wait until the new generation of Chromebooks are out that can run Android apps. And um, we mentioned this first on the podcast uh, several weeks ago as the Chromebook Flip, which was the first model that in beta allowed the installation of, of, of Android apps. And for those who have not seen the news, um, earlier this year at Google I.O., the International Developers Conference for Google, they announced that uh, upcoming versions of Chrome, not on all Chromebooks, and I and I have a, maybe a little bone to pick with that a little bit uh, uh, later when we talk about this, but um, we'll start to be able to natively run any application from the Google Play Store, which is the Android app store, which has over a billion apps. This includes very functional versions of Microsoft's Office Suite apps for Android. It includes the many social media apps, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, which uh, beats the pants off of almost any web-based version of these apps. It also would include the media apps like Spotify, Google Play, uh, or Google Play Music, um, uh, Apple, uh, Apple streaming service, right? All these apps will soon be available and as a lot of the early testers of the um, Chromebook Flip, they announced three early adoption platforms that you could turn on through some magic commands, the uh, Play Store. The first one was the Asus Chromebook Flip, a 10-inch, um, they would call it a convertible, which is a, a little mini laptop that you can swing the screen all the way around to turn into a tablet. And early Reviews from both nerds that I know and trust and also um, uh, internet commentators was almost universally positive that the apps ran very snappy, especially in comparison to uh, the ARM-based chips that are sitting in a lot of cheap Chromebooks, tend not to run the web uh, super persuasively, uh, uh, so it's it's not always as, as engaging or as fast or snappy as you want it to be. And the Chrome apps, which are, are I'm sorry, the, the Android apps, which are used to much slower chips and much less RAM, um, can uh, oftentimes very speedily deliver content, media, engaging tools, uh, uh, I'm sure absolutely um, uh, uh, mind, uh, mind attention-stealing games, um, and it looks awesome. And so um, it, it's coming, and i got to say, I'm going to wait until it's fully released out of beta, but I'm probably going to buy a brand-new Chrome device that has this feature simply to get access to the App Store, because I think it's going to be mind-blowing. Um, Wes, what do you, what's your thoughts on this? I think that I'm relieved that the Dell 11-inch Chromebooks that we just purchased uh, for school, we, we we have about four new carts of them. I am pretty sure, I need to verify this, but that they're going to be compatible. Um, I hope they are. I I know that the App Store idea, and it's not just an idea, it's a delivery model, is of huge importance for multiple reasons, not only because... It just helps helps people get new versions of software. But from a security standpoint, we all need to be running updates. Right. And one of the problems that exists now is that we have lots of especially old Windows platforms, but other, other systems as well that people don't patch. And this lets folks that want to do malicious things, you know, not, not only potentially take control of your computer, but just install small little systems that send pings and, and then are able to flood systems. And there's, you know, zombie botnets and just 
crazy things that you're like, what the heck are you talking about, Wes? And I'd say, listen to the Security Now podcast, and they'll inform you well about the, the security landscape. So app stores are, are, are a good thing overall. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how this lines up with with Apple and, and Apple's innovation because mention, you mentioning the older ARM processors, it makes me think of the circa 2009 to 2011 netbooks, you know, that a lot of people yep. were excited about. Oh, it's going to be so great in education. Well, really, the processors weren't that fast as far as what they needed to be, especially with video, and the web hadn't matured. So, you know, again, on a personal note at our school, we are not one-to-one, and we're not in any way, shape, or form racing to one-to-one. But we are living in this environment where, where I believe, and this belief preceded my, my current job role, that at some point, everyone is going to have a device at school. It's going to be silly to say, you know, let's spend quite a bit of money on all this paper, you know, when we can have something much more powerful that not only lets us consume, but lets us produce and share and interact. So I am excited about this. I continue to be amazed. Uh, in fact, I will preview this. So the Geek of the Week that I was going to focus on is the setup workflow for the iPad configuration that we've been doing with Apple Configurator 2, which they updated this spring, and our Meraki uh, mobile manager. It. I love Macs. I love iPads. But I don't have the words to adequately describe in a few short sentences how different it is provisioning and setting up Chrome devices relative to the number of hoops and just ridiculous things that you have to do to set up the iPads. So yep, absolutely. Excited, excited to see Chromebooks continue to mature and really believe that it's going to continue to be a game changer for schools. Yeah. And I will say that I would love to be able to pull off a one uh, or the 10 inch, uh, flippable, um, Chrome device. It's not, it's, it's probably not what I'm going for because I would like something I've, I'm able to, to do more of the web-based productivity apps that I need for work, for example. But yeah, I, I think it's a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful possibility. Um, so Wes, we are in the 850 hour. Shall we do one more quick one and then we can talk about our geeks of the week? Sure. Sounds good. Uh, let's do the addicting screen. So a couple, sure. uh, you, you can tell I've been listening to NPR, uh, researchers <laughs> study effects of social media on young minds and summer camps struggle to enforce bans on screen time. Um, a couple weeks ago, Jason had shared an article, which, uh, really has, has stuck in my mind about how it was by a Google ethicist, how, Many apps today and social media environments are designed like a slot machine to give you a, a random feedback, and they really have an addictive power. And so both of these articles um, are pointing to, again, the power of social media, um, the need for detox, which we had a little bit of this summer when we went camping, but also the importance of not – the importance of talking about with students and, and with ourselves, too – not getting a large amount of our identity from the likes and and the feedback that we that we get on uh, Instagram or Facebook or anywhere else. Um, the first article that that says uh, study you know effect of social media on young minds said that students who were not even seeing their own Instagram friends, but they were seeing you know pictures that had more likes, even if you know, irrespective of what they had, they just, they tended to think, well, that's great. That's valuable. And I, I see this happening with our own children where there's a real focus on how many likes did I get on that picture? Yeah. And it, 
it plays into identity and to some really big things that if I was an anthropologist, I, I could probably talk talk about at much greater length. But I just am uh, am interested in this because it's not just the dark side of social media and technology. It's also sort of just the emerging reality. And um, I don't know. I want to raise some of these issues with our parents as we have some some gatherings about digital citizenship this year, uh, not because I've got it all figured out, but because – I know that we need to have conversations about it and we can be unhealthy in all kinds of ways, but one way that probably more students than we realize have an imbalance might be the degree to which they ascribe value to themselves or to others and to content, you know, because look, look how many likes it has and gosh, what am I going to do to, you know, take some risks and, you know, get some, get some likes or whatever. Yep, absolutely. And I would also say that, by the way, I'm the uncle of uh, two nieces, 13 and 11, and they've both told me that uh, they don't understand why, first of all, why I post mostly just food pics to Instagram. But second, um, they are concerned because I only get, you know, like 18 likes on a photo and oh, my God. And, uh, you know, and that's been a fresh perspective for me because I, well, I, I certainly don't live through Instagram, but it is a place I like to, you know, amuse myself. And I think that that notion of, you know, kind of going for that, that affirmation via, uh, its social media. And then I think that does encourage people to, to, to do riskier and riskier things on social media then. And so that creates a, that creates a real problem for, you know, a lack of frontal lobe development teens. And so, um, yeah, I think the more we can be having these conversations, you know, were introducing, um, you know, uh, voices into our children's lives 24-7, like they really can't get away from the world because you are suddenly connected with, um, you know, your friends all the time. And if that, that's, I guess, fine if that's a, if that's a good, healthy relationship. But if your children are, are engaged, as teens often are, in unhealthy friendships or relationships, um, uh, you know, they can't shut that down. Right. And the early bullying that we experienced uh, via, you know, uh, even early cell phones, text messaging, terrifying. And I'm not sure if necessarily we're coming to terms with some of that yet. And just in the car today with my girls, you know, they were saying, are you subscribed to so and so? Oh, yeah, she's great. I love her. Blah, blah, blah. I have no clue who they're talking about. Right. And right. so in the old days, you know, we'd have uh, television in the living room or in other places and there would be more parental involvement in the consumption of media. And so families are different and we continue to question whether or not we've sort of opened the faucet more than we need to by letting both of the girls have laptops and devices and, and able to access things. So anyway, screen time limits. Uh, these are issues for us too, right? I could totally work all night and not hardly dent my email and the things that I have to do. So <laughs> it is a, it's, it's a challenge and it's good, good to visit about these things. And also just to hear how other people are, are grappling with them, right? Because that's right. going to give us ideas and suggestions. Right. All right. I think it's time for our Geek of the Week. Every week, Wes and I like to share a tool with you that has inspired us in the last week, and I'll go ahead and jump in first um, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, have heard of this tool, but Remind, which is formerly known as Remind 101, is an excellent free communication tool. And the reason why I this has gotten back on my radar is because 
Um, well, first, we're going to use it as an emer- emergency notification system for our teaching force this year. Um, we oftentimes struggle when email goes down, and because I run a virtual school, um, you know, we we don't really have the means of of communicating with folks when their email is down, for example. And so we wanted to find a way that we could maybe get a little quicker than a phone tree or sending to personal email addresses. And so we're going to ask our teachers to sign up for remi- reminders here and. I've been digging through the tool this week, and it's been a year or two since I used it in context when I used to use it for my college classes, and it is a fabulously expanded tool. There is a uh, a district administration um, uh, interface uh, that allows you to pull everything under one umbrella. It can allow you as a school to send things to all the individual classes under your umbrella. Of course, there's the two-way communication because you can do things like field trip notifications, sign-up forms. Um, what I'm always surprised about with this tool is that I I still don't think I've ever seen an advertisement on it. Yeah, how do they monetize? Is like, it going away? Is it I know, getting, I like know. Blab? Yeah, Blab has announced that they've acquired and <laughs> shut down Remind 101. Oh, um, no. Right. And so I don't, in fact, I, I have a sales rep that, that pinged me today. Um, and I, and I, I didn't really need the walkthrough that she had suggested, but maybe I will ask for the call because I, I guess I want to hear that answer that, um, you know, you're obviously monetizing somehow because this, this is year five, I think. It's, yeah. it, I mean, it's, it's getting old school now. I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like the Volkswagen bug of apps and, um, and it's, it's, it's extraordinary. It's still around, but it's still the cleanest, um, uh, most simplistic and powerful tool that I've seen that can create a basic communication conduit. And we're going to probably this spring roll it out as a mandatory tool at the digital academy. I think we're going to ask our teachers now that there's all these great interfaces for managing, um, the, uh, individual classes. Like it's, it's a no brainer for us. So, uh, remind.com. Um, wonderful. Um, I would encourage you that at one point I was a Remind 101 advocate, uh, where I got on one of their, their Remind lists for like early access to things. If you could still do that, I would. Great information, but, uh, Remind.com, wonderful ed tech tool, and you can set it up right now and use it tomorrow in your classroom. Awesome. Well, please check back with us about, um, especially how you coach your 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 faculty and teachers in not over spamming because oh. i think that's an important balance with those kinds of notifications that if you yep. send too much people are going to get upset you're going to blow up their phone so we're we have a lot more notification features in the new student information system that we have that we've just rolled out. So yep. my geek of the week just changed. Uh, thanks to Jason. And it is play pause it. And that's a play on words. It's the word play P L A Y, but then it's not pause. It's P O S I T, but that's an intentional play on words because this is about using video that pauses and then ask students questions to engage them and give a little, you know, uh, understanding comprehension check and, um, you know, chunk this, the experience of, of video. So, um, hat tip or shout out to Rob Huber, who is Black Dog OKC. He's one of our eighth grade math teachers at our school and showed this to me. He is going to be using this to mostly flip his algebra classes that he is teaching this year and one of the things that he described to me that was really challenging, um, not just last year, but in the past, is getting into this cycle of a, as a math teacher of, of really talking about low-level, more simple problems, and then having students work them, 
and we don't have time to get to the complex problems that then they're sent home to to fend and, and wrestle with on their own. So by sharing these short video clips, having students interact and and sometimes answer a multiple choice, sometimes do an open an, open ended answer. Uh, it's not integrated with our student management system or student information system, but or LMS whatever. Um, but it uh, will give him a, a list of who's watched the video and who has you know responded and how have they done. I'm really excited because huh, I'm convinced that we need to do more differentiation in our instruction, and certainly math is an area that we need that. But also blending our instruction where we're able to get some of the content via video, and then when we're face-to-face, when we're together interactively, really leveraging the, the what we can do there, right? Because we can do different things. You can ask me questions. I can answer questions. And we can't do that as well when we're not to get, when we're when we're apart. So, cool cool tool, free. Play pause it. Um, I don't even know if it if it has a, a subscription base, but I'll check in with that later. And I'm I'm probably going to be doing more featuring of what our teachers are doing innovation wise in the classroom. And I think Rob is will be one that I'll do. So hopefully I can share a link here in a few weeks with a little bit more information about how that's going for him. Awesome, great. Thank you so much, Wes. Well, it is the top of the hour, which means you've had an hour of exciting uh, ed tech banter from the ed tech situation room. Uh, we'd like to remind you that we would join you most Wednesdays at uh, 9 p.m. No, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we always broadcast uh, where we're going to be. It's usually going to be YouTube, by, at least for the time being, um, by following us on Twitter at EdTech. Uh, EdTech SR or also our individual tech or our Twitter feeds. Uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director, curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy and also the NCCE tech savvy administrator in residence for the Northwest Council for Computer Education. I blog at blog.ncc.org and I'm always sharing interesting things that I come by during my time reading on the internet on my Twitter feed, tech savvy teach. And Wes, why don't you, uh, close us out? Well, I am Wes Fryer. You can find me on the Twitter fear, Twitter sphere, uh, the tweets on <laughs> at W Fryer. Uh, I, uh, wear, wear a few different hats. Uh, one of those is as an ed camp organizer and I'm looking forward to organizing some more ed camps. My wife, in fact, is wanting to get an ed camp just here for Northwest Oklahoma City, but we've usually had our Oklahoma City ones in February and March, but have looking for an ed camp probably in the Texas area to check out in the fall. So, uh, a new, uh, College dad gonna be it's it's a bigger mix of emotions than we've ever had uh you know because it's it's excitement and sadness and everything all together so we would love it if you heard anything tonight that you um, found useful or you had a further question about or just wanted to comment on please reach out to us on Twitter let us know that you're listening uh, we may even do a little survey before long to find out a little bit more about our listeners we we know there's a few of you out there downloading the podcast and we appreciate it and look forward to next time. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to another amazing episode of the EdTech Situation Room with your hosts Jason and Wes. Remember to subscribe to us on Twitter and Blab, and access episode show notes on edtechsr.com. Slash links. Content on the EdTech Situation Room is shared under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Subscribe to our audio podcast feed in your favorite mobile podcatcher app, and check out our archived show videos on YouTube. The EdTech Situation Room, where technology news meets educational analysis.